0: really good to be here. <laughs> That's what happens when I try and turn this thing on without looking at it. So anyway, we're well, glad to be here and uh, welcome to all of you guys. We are in the middle of our axe series. I uh, want to say uh, welcome to everybody, also including our family out at Stone Canyon and Vertigo and anybody watching online. We are glad that you guys are here. Um, as I said, we are about halfway through this Acts series. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 today. I know that's not half of 28 chapters. I did take math in college, uh, but we're going to speed up here in the next coming weeks. Um, but we're excited to move forward today. But as we're, uh, as we're right here in kind of this middle point, um, we've been encouraging you guys uh, throughout this whole series to be in the Word of God and to be reading through the book of Acts as we go along. Sometimes we skip a chapter here or there uh, because we can't go through 28 chapters in four. Weeks. And so we've just been encouraging you guys to, uh, to do that, to just be immersing yourself in the Word of God as we go along. And before we get started, I'd just like to take a second to just give you that encouragement again. Uh, right now, uh, our vision statement is we want to be a church who uh, helps, uh, who seeks lost people and grows found people. And i got to say, there is no better way, there is no more important thing that you can do to be growing in your relationship with Christ than to be immersing yourself in the Word of God. There's really, truly no replacement for that. Uh, In fact, if you look through the Scriptures, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, and that chapter of the Bible is dedicated almost entirely to the praise of God's Word. It's in there where we see David write, things like, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's there where he says, I have hidden your Word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And I just want to tell you, if we want to be transformed into the image of Christ, there's no better way to do that than to be reading the Word of God in your daily life. And so if you're not already doing that, if that's not part of your daily routine, if that's not something that you're already making part of your life, can I just encourage you and challenge you to do that before we get started? Is that okay? Can you guys do that? All right, three of us are going gonna to read our Bibles. <laughs> Sounds good. But we got an amen and I haven't started preaching yet, so it's going to be a good day. Alright, so we're going to be in chapter uh, 9 today, and uh, last week, Mark Scott came here and he preached on uh, everyone is welcome. He talked about breaking down barriers uh, for people, and if you hadn't had an opportunity yet to listen to that message, then I encourage you to go online and do so. Very impactful message. Uh, Next week, Matt will pick back up in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and talk about uh, how anything is possible, but today we're going to talk about this idea of nobody, no one is Perfect. As we look at the conversion of a guy named Saul, who would later be known as Paul the Apostle. Now, if you've been in church for very long, then you probably know who this guy is. Uh, And this is, you know, that this chapter right here, this story about Saul's conversion, is a pretty big deal. Uh, Luke, who writes this book, Acts, doesn't like to repeat himself too often usually, but we see this story no less than three times. We see it here in Acts chapter 9, and he'll repeat it again later in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26. And this guy, Saul, later known as Paul, is such a a big and influential person in Christianity that he'll actually show up on almost every list, even secular places like Time magazine, as one of the most influential figures in all of history, both Christian and secular. Because this guy, it's a big deal. The conversion of this guy who was once the most adamant and, and feared uh, opponents of Christianity and then somehow is turned into the greatest missionary in history. This is a big deal. Uh, and so we're going to get into that. We're going to get into his story today here in just a second. Uh, but first, if you don't mind, why don't we go to the Word of God in prayer and then we'll dive in. God, thank you so much for uh, your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for his sacrifice that he made on the cross, and God, thank you um, for your love for me and for each one of us here that you would send him to die for us to save a wretch like me, God. God, I pray that as we uh, dive into your word today, I pray that you'd give us open minds and that you'd give us open hearts and be receptive to what you have to teach us today. Father, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that everybody said, amen. Well, just about all of you know who Benjamin Franklin is, right? Uh, well, he was uh, one of the founding fathers of our country and in uh, most respects is a very admirable guy. He has this huge long list of accomplishments and things that he did. Actually, on that same Time Magazine list of influential people, he shows up one person behind Saul, who we're going to read about today. But there's this really big figure in American history. Uh, did a whole lot of things, uh, very, very well known. If you uh, are a person who likes to uh, carry around wa- large wads of cash in your wallet, like I do, then you've probably seen his uh, face on your money. Uh, but this is this is a big, uh, big person in history. We've all uh, seen about him. Well, when he was young, he was about 20 years old. Uh, he decided that he was going to go on this uh, pro- undertake this project. Now, he wasn't really a Christian; he was a deist, and so you can imagine that his understanding of morality. His understanding of right and wrong and how we attain that was a little bit different than, uh, than us. But he decided to go on this undertaking. What he thought he would do is he thought that he would, uh, he would try to basically attain moral perfection. So what he did was he sat down at one point, he was about 20 years old, and he sat down and he made this, this list of uh, attributes that everyone should aspire to. And so he came up with this list of 13 attributes that he figured covered just about everything, things like temperance and order and frugality and silence, Uh, these virtues, if you will, that all of us should aspire to. And so what he did, he made himself a little chart. And so he had his 13 columns here, and he wrote them all down, and then he had a list for every day of the week. And he would keep track of how often he uh, did something wrong in this one particular area. And so he figured he'd go by week by week, and the first week, he'd just start with virtue number one, temperance. And he'd make a little mark any time he did something uh, against that. And, and what he figured was that over time, he could just work himself hard enough, he could work hard enough to where that he would never commit any fault. And so he would do week one, and then after he had mastered that in a week, uh, he would go on to week number two, and so on and so on, until he got through all 13 weeks, uh, and then he could just kind of repeat this cycle to where he could eventually attain... Moral perfection. How do you like that? Well, he wrote about this in his autobiography. You can read it. Um, And he also talks about the challenges that came up. He said, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. Good luck to you. He said, I would conquer all that either natural inclination or custom or company might lead me into. And as I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. We can assume that Benjamin Franklin, as a 20-year-old, was pretty idealistic, don't you think? But then later he would say that I soon found out I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. And then later he would say, I entered upon the execution of this plan for self-examination and continued it with occasional intermissions for some time, but I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. So Benjamin Franklin realized that no one is perfect. Now, we all know that. We could have told him that, right? We know that, that nobody's perfect. That's a phrase we throw around a whole, lot of, uh, a whole lot. You know, it's, ah, well, I messed up, but you know what? Nobody's perfect. We all know that no one is perfect, and yet that doesn't always stop us from trying. And I think that's sort of where we find Saul in at this point. When we're in uh, Acts chapter 9, if you uh, are using the Bible in the pew in front of you, we'll be on uh, page 1087. But let's uh, take a look at this guy named Saul. Uh, Saul was the person who was, um, we know was this big persecutor of the church, and we're going to read just a little bit of that story here in just a second. But where did he come from? What's going on? Well, actually, chapter 9 is not the first place where we see his story come up. You remember a couple of weeks ago uh, when Matt was preaching on Acts chapter 7, he talked about this guy named Stephen. You remember him? Uh, This guy who was full of the Holy Spirit, he was one who was chosen to help look after the the widows as the uh, church was continuing to grow. And so he was this great guy full of the Holy Spirit. Well, at one point, he decides he's going to go out there and he's going to preach the resurrected Jesus. And so as he's doing that, as we all know, All of the religious leaders didn't really, uh, they weren't too keen on this. They didn't like it a whole lot. And so they ended up taking Stephen. They dragged him outside of the city, and they stoned him there and left him for dead. And therefore, he was the uh, first martyr that we have in recorded history. And that's when we see Saul. Uh, We see there at the end of chapter 7, beginning of 8, it says that Saul was there talking about Stephen, giving approval to his death. And then it says, "On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and uh, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Saul, began to destroy the church. Did you hear about Karen Osborne?" Uh, She was a 63-year-old grandmother last year up in the state of Maryland, and she was the first person that we have any record record of in the past at least several decades uh, to be the victim of a bear attack. Uh, What happened was uh, one evening, it was kind of dark outside, and she heard her dogs barking out there, and so she decided she was going to go out and see what was going on, see what the matter was. And so as she goes outside, uh, she discovered what they were barking at. When she went out there, she saw a mother bear with her little cubs. Well, as you can guess, the mother bear was pretty protective, and so she began to attack Karen, clawing at her, ripping at her flesh, breaking her bones. In fact, she didn't just attack her once, she came back, and she came back again. Uh, And you can actually uh, hear the audio recording of Karen calling the police, asking for help. It's kind of haunting, actually. Uh, She calls and and you can hear in her voice, her trembling voice, you can tell she's in pain and that she's hurt. And and her broken voice, she says, He's broken my arms and my legs, I can't move. I'm bleeding and I'm going to die. Please, please send help. Fortunately, uh, help came in time and she was able to survive but she had over 80 stitches, and she came out of the hospital in a wheelchair, and the healing process will be a long time. When we see here in Acts chapter 8, when it says Saul began to destroy the church, that's the picture that they're giving here. This word destroy is actually used of the Old Testament of wild beasts tearing at flesh. That's what Saul is doing to God's church He's going around and he's trying to destroy, to tear and rip apart the church of God. And as he does that and as persecution grows, we see that uh, the people, out of fear for their life and, and for all different reasons, they go out and the church starts to spread outside of Jerusalem in all different areas. And, uh, and as it does that, the gospel begins to advance. You remember Mark Scott's sermon last week and he talked about uh, how we got to see the gospel move and grow through this persecution, but as the church moved outside of Jerusalem, Paul Followed, so let's pick back up where his story continues in Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. It says that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So at this point, we've got to ask ourselves, who is this guy? Uh, who is this guy that's just, that's just got something so, this passionate hatred against the church? Why is, he, why is he so upset? Who is this guy? Well, we actually know quite a bit about him, both from his story here in Acts and also, uh, as we know, he'll uh, later write about 13 of the New Testament books and we, we hear more of his story then and also from his historical records. We actually know a whole lot about Paul or still Saul here. Uh, first, uh, uh, Saul was a Jew. He was born in this city called Tarsus. Tarsus was actually one of the leading cities in the time. Uh, it was about uh, number three on the uh, uh, educational list. This was, is this was a big city, and this is where Saul lived. This is where he was born. We know also that he came from a long Jewish line. His family was Jewish, uh, and, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. But not only did he come from this long Jewish line, Uh, But Saul also had this privilege of being a Roman citizen. Well, that wasn't just a privilege that anybody and everybody had. You either had to be born with it, or you had to pay a whole lot of money to get it. And we don't really know how Saul got it, but somehow he had this dual citizenship. He had this privilege of being a Roman citizen, which would later on in his life end up uh, uh, doing a lot of great things for him as he uh, preached the gospel. But Paul is this Jew, and he was uh, also a Roman citizen, um, but he was trained, trained very well in the law, trained in the Torah. You see, for uh, Jewish uh, boys as they grew up, that's, that was their schooling. And in Paul's case, most likely, by the time he was 12 years old, he had the whole uh, law of God memorized. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, by 12 years old, he's got this Jewish law all memorized. But not only that, he's probably beginning to learn the trade of his father, which later on we know that he was a tent maker, and that's probably what he learned. So, he knows the law, and he knows how to do this this trade, but he was a Jew, but he also had this privilege of being a Roman citizen. But something else that we discover is that he studied under this guy named Gamaliel. Uh, Well, for a Jewish boy... Now, most likely you're going to grow up to do what your dad do, and your dad grew up to do what his dad do, and so on and so on, and there's not a whole lot of change. But if, if you were good enough, if you were able to, uh, to impress a rabbi, to impress this teacher, then you might get chosen. You might get chosen to be his, uh, his student, to be his pupil, to, to learn to be like him, to walk in his ways, and maybe even grow up to be a rabbi yourself. And Paul somehow impressed this guy named Gamaliel, who was not just any rabbi. This is like like the rabbi of rabbis. He's the most famous teacher of all guys. And so somehow Saul wasn't just a Roman citizen, wasn't just a Jew from a long line of this family history that they were proud about, but somehow he was good enough to be chosen among all his peers to be like studying under the top dog. And, and he has all these, uh, these accomplishments. He starts developing this pretty impressive resume. In fact, later on in uh, Philippians chapter 3, we'll see him writing about his former life. But he's talking to some people who are pretty, uh, you might say, proud of their own accomplishments, proud of their, their own self. And this is what he says in chapters 3. He says uh, in verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence in the flesh. If anyone has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. And he starts to tell of all of these things, this long list on his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now that more or less tells us that he's been following the law since his birth. And he says, I was of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. He wasn't just a student of the law, he was a teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. If anybody got close to perfection on their own merit, it was this guy named Saul. And yet, he hated, 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 the church. And so he follows the church to Damascus, to tear it apart there. This isn't just like, you know, on his way home from the grocery store. This is about a six-day journey on foot. Well, why does he hate the church so much? Do you know people who just have a hatred for God's church? You really don't have to go that far to find them. I mean, you can look about just on any internet blog that's out there, right, and you just look at the comments below, and it doesn't matter what the blog is about, somehow all the conversations end up turning into uh, politics or religion, right? And you just see that, that there are a lot of people who just just have this passionate hatred for God, this, this hatred for his church. Why does Paul hate the church? Well, we know at least that this wasn't just some sterile religiosity of Paul's or Saul's. He wasn't just uh, trying to accomplish this stuff for his own sake, but he actually had zeal for God. He was passionate for God's righteousness, and and it might not be too out there to say that he was a little too passionate for his own self-righteousness. So what happened that turned Saul from this wild beast destroying the church into the church's greatest missionary? Well, let's read on. In chapter 9, starting in verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on this journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must must do. Well, there's a couple things that I think are interesting to note in this passage. First is this thing that we see in verse 4. Uh, when Paul is, uh, when Saul is confronted by Jesus, uh, he says this interesting thing. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, you wouldn't be too surprised to, uh, to see if Paul was kind of uh, confused, or Saul, excuse me, I'm going back and forth there. Saul might have been confused by this statement. He says, why do you persecute me? But that's not what he was doing, was it? Because Saul's, you know, oh, this, this Jesus fella, no, 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 that's, that's the guy, like, you know, that, that's past, that's history already. You, this is this, this teacher, he came, and he, you know, he was crucified, he died, and he all that stuff is over. He's, he's gone. I'm not, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting all these other people. And yet somehow, somehow according to Jesus, it's kind of the same thing. And would this affect Paul's theology? Well, I think so, because later on, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, he says that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And he says that we are the body of Christ. Is there something more than just metaphor here, perhaps? We who have the Spirit of God living inside of us, it seems to me that there's a deeper link between us. Moreover, Paul will also say that we are the bride of Christ. And now I recognize, I get it. Uh, I know that I'm not the most imposing physical specimen in the world. I understand that. But I promise you this, that if you mess with my bride, you'll have 155 pounds of raging fury all up in your business. And every husband sitting next to his wife better say amen. So when Saul messes with the church, he's messing with Jesus. And if nothing else, I think this should make us pause to consider how do we treat our fellow brothers and sisters, the body of Christ. But here Jesus calls him out. Can you imagine what Saul must have felt in this moment? I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade in my civics class, my seventh hour, uh, when I was in junior high, I guess I was relatively smart for a junior high kid. Um, And you might say that I was even kind of proud for being very smart for a a junior high kid, but you might say that I was more proud that other people thought that I was smart for a junior high kid. And so on this one day in civics class, uh, it was a test day, and so I don't even remember what it was over, um, but we had this test, and I went through, and I marked all the answers and everything, got it done, wrote my name on, turned it in, and went back down in my chair while well, just sitting quietly there trying to be respectful for everybody else. And then, all of a sudden, I feel this little tap on my shoulder. Well, the girl who sat behind me wasn't exactly the most studious or responsible person in the class. And so I turn my ear uh, to her attention, and I hear this Psst. What'd you get on number seven? And so now I'm kind of torn. Because I know that this is probably the wrong thing to do, but uh, I've already told you that I was probably a little bit more concerned about my pride than my integrity at this time. And so I turned, I, uh, as discreetly as I could, looked at her paper, read the question, and I gave her the answer and turned back around in my seat. A few seconds later, tap on my shoulder. So I turned and this over the next couple of minutes as as uh, uh, discreetly as a 7th grade kid can, you know, possibly be because we we're all super sneaky at that time, right? As discreetly as I possibly could, I began to proceed and get, start giving her all the answers, just you know, walking her through so that she could get done. Until all of a sudden I hear, "Jared Parker!" And in that moment I knew I was in trouble. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Hmm. See, Saul isn't just caught in the wrong act here, doing something that he knew he wasn't supposed to be doing. See, in this this one moment, in these few words, I am Jesus, his whole world is turned completely upside down. You see, Saul probably thought that he was actually doing the right thing, and you can understand why, because, you know, if he's got this zeal and this passion for God's righteousness, and all of a sudden this, you know, this, this crazy teacher out there who's, you know, he's trying to lead all these people astray, and then, and then he ends up getting crucified on a cross and buried, away and they're making up all these, you know, weird things about him, but now all of a sudden it didn't just die right there, but it's growing, and they're spreading, and these people, they're, they're, they're being led astray from God. And so Saul thinks that he is doing the right thing. In fact, Dr. Craig Blomberg, he's a well-respected theologian, he said that uh, Saul most likely was convinced that this apostate group of followers of Jesus were preventing God from blessing the Jews. And so exterminating this group had to be the will of God. And yet, and yet here, his whole world is turned upside down. So what happened? What happened that turned Saul from being the greatest persecutor of the church to being its greatest missionary? What happened is that Saul met Jesus. And that changes everything. It changes everything. In fact, this is such a drastic change that in that same passage that we read when he was listing off his qualifications, this, this big long, you know, resume, this impressive list of all the things in his, you know, previous life that he had built up as he was trying to, you know, climb this religious ladder, if you will. Well, immediately after that, he says in Philippians 3 verse 7, he says, but whatever, whatever was to my prophet, my, my, my family history, my education, uh, all these accomplishments, my status as a Pharisee, all these things that it, whatever I thought was once to my gain, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing, Noah, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then I love this statement. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, it says that word rubbish there. That doesn't just mean like, you know, worthless trash or something like that. You know what that actually means? It's like refuse, waste matter, if you smell what I'm stepping in. All these things that he thought were were to his gain, these these accomplishments, these things that he was proud of are are now despicable to him. In fact, they're they're a loss, They're, they're a negative on his account compared to what? Compared to knowing Jesus. All things are a loss compared to knowing Jesus. And that's how we see this drastic change in Paul. And I wonder, does your life look any different today? Am I different because I know Jesus? Are we relying on the grace of God or are we still trying to do this all by our own power instead of relying upon the transforming power of God's grace? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Start picking up at uh, verse 7. It says that the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Yeah. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. But Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. And in Damascus, there was this disciple named Ananias, not the Ananias that you know, a different one. It says, the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas, Uh, not the Judas that you know, another one, but go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So, Lord, Ananias answered, "Uh, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. I love uh, how Ananias uh, reacts to God's call to him in this moment. Uh, Not a whole lot different than than how a lot of people respond to God when he calls to them throughout the Bible. But I just kind of, I don't think this is maybe exactly what happened, but it's sort of how I envision it. It's like the Jared Parker translation of the Bible. I can just see Ananias there, like, like God, do you want me to do what? Like, I mean, I, I get it here. Like, you know, I'm Ananias. There's this other Ananias. Like, you know, Judas on the straight street. We know each other. He gets confused a lot. Like, so are we talking about the same Saul? But God says, yes, Go. And so, uh, we'll pick back up verse 15. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, and appear before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house, and he entered it. It's interesting. Ananias got up, and he obeyed. And it didn't matter that it made no sense to him at the time. It didn't matter how strange it seemed. It didn't even matter how afraid he was for his own life. He got up and he was obedient to God. Do any of us need to hear that today? But We'll finish out the passage here. It says, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, I love how Ananias responds to Saul here. I hadn't noticed this word before, but I think it's important. I think it's significant and worth noting to us. Did you see how he addressed him, he said, Brother Saul. And this is the first thing that he says to this guy. He says, Brother Saul. He doesn't call him by his name first. He calls him family first. This man who just a few short days ago would just have soon had him dragged off to prison, even killed, is now called Brother And I wonder, how quick are we to extend grace? How do we respond when outsiders all of a sudden become insiders? Do we rejoice that what was lost is now found? Or do we look down our noses because the outside of their cup isn't all that clean yet? Maybe we're even offended because they haven't put in the hours yet. They don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't talk and walk like us. That's kind of how they looked at Zacchaeus. You Remember his story in Luke chapter 19? It's a short story about a short man, but there's another guy who uh, meets Jesus along the road. Uh, so uh, he, was, he, was, you know, he had the lineage, he, was, uh, he had the history, he was part of the people of Israel, but he was a tax collector. And a lot of you know that's not a good thing. People didn't look too kindly on him. In fact, being a tax collector, he was looked at as a traitor. And so he probably didn't have a whole lot of dinner company from all the good little boys and girls who tied their shoes right and they you know, didn't run in church and they said all the right things and did all the right things. He was kind of an outcast. He was an outsider. But he came to Jesus, and his life was changed. You remember what Jesus said to him? After, after Zacchaeus uh, pledged this, this new changed life, Jesus didn't say, okay, well, here's the hoops you've got to jump through, and here's all the, all the things you've got to do. He didn't give him a, a, a to-do list or this, you know, these accomplishments they had to make. But what did Jesus say? He said, today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. See, when Zacchaeus met Jesus, it changed everything. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave you and I? I don't know, maybe some of us are still struggling to extend grace to other people, like Ananias did. Maybe we're having a a hard time. Maybe it's because we know their past, we know what they've done, and, and it's still hard for us to imagine that people might actually be different. Or maybe we have a hard time just understanding that God would actually extend grace to them. Perhaps what we need to do is remember the grace that God first extended us. Because the fact is, no one of us is perfect. Or maybe we're still trying to attain perfection on our own. Now, we know that's not possible, but sometimes we kind of act more like what we mean when we say that is, uh, no one's perfect. Well, I didn't used to be perfect, but, but now I got Jesus, and so, and so I might be able to get it if I just work hard enough. But we can't. It's by grace that we are saved. Now, uh, uh, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we should be clear on this. This isn't a, a, an excuse or a, a license to use grace as an excuse, right? Sometimes that's kind of what we mean. Oh, I messed up, but nobody's perfect, right? That's okay. God's grace. He'll, he'll cover me. It's all good. And we just move on about our day. But we're never, given a li- we're never given a license to use grace as an excuse. In fact, Romans even says, Shall we go on sinning so that this grace may increase? And Paul says, uh, by no means, almost in the strongest language that he possibly could, he says, we have died to sin. How can we go on living in it anymore? You see, the grace of God doesn't just forgive our past, it transforms our future. It changes us. We are called out of the darkness and into the light. But let us remember that it is by grace that we are saved. And it's by grace through faith that we stand before God. So maybe we need to stop pursuing perfection and we need to start pursuing our Savior more. But maybe some of us need to meet Jesus for the first time. Um, It's interesting uh, that God had to blind Saul to the things of this world in order for him to finally see clearly. Uh, some of you guys know the uh, story of a guy named John Newton. He was, uh, uh, well, kind of a rebel, not really uh, uh, the greatest of characters a couple hundred years ago. And for a while, he found himself working on uh, slave ships, transporting slaves back and forth between the countries. Until at one point on one of those journeys, he was uh, on a ship, and this huge, huge storm came up to where everyone was afraid of their life and uh, afraid for their life. And in this fear, in this, in this uncertainty, he cried out, Lord Help us. And now things didn't just change overnight for him. And that's usually the case for all of us as well. But somehow later on, this man transformed because he met Jesus, was able to write those words that we all know amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. Maybe some of you have been walking down your own road for some time, and you've been trying to do this on your own, and you need to let go. Now, I can tell you that it's not always easy, and the Apostle Paul can attest to that for sure. But what I can tell you is this when you meet Jesus, it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, your grace is beyond comparison. God, we can't even we can't even understand the love and the grace that you have for us. But God, we thank you nonetheless. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. I I just thank you for you. Uh, God, my prayer this morning is that if there are people here who are still trying to Uh, to attain some goal that they can never do on their own, God, that you would help them to see that they need to just let go and rest in your grace and your love. God, we love you. God, forever we are grateful for your son, Jesus, and it's his name that we pray. Amen.